Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church, now with readers in more than 180 countries. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Happy New Year. My essay this week is entitled Ancient Wisdom for the Modern World, My New Year's Resolutions with Help from the Desert Monastics, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 1st, 2006. The new year is a time to look forward, but in 2006, I'm looking backward for my resolutions. About 10 years ago, I started reading the 4th century desert monastics who fled the corruption of church and society to seek Christ in the solitude of the Egyptian desert. Especially formative at that time was my reading of the Philokalia, considered by some Eastern Orthodox believers to be second in importance only to the Bible. More recently, I've enjoyed two books of these eccentric saints, one entitled Where God Happens by Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, and then a second book called In the Heart of the Desert, The Spirituality of the Desert Fathers and Mothers by John Krasovgis, professor of theology and former dean at the Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology. I'm grateful to the monastics for several reasons. Jesus fled to Egypt as a baby, we read in Matthew chapter 2, 12 to 23. And in Luke's gospel, our first glimpse of him as an adult was when the Holy Spirit drove him into the desert to be tempted by Satan, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Secondly, these desert dwellers were practitioners of healing, not abstract theoreticians. They sought personal transformation, not merely theological information. They believed the wisdom of Diodocus of Photiki in the 5th century that nothing is so destitute as a mind philosophizing about God when it is without him. Thirdly, the desert monastics might strike us as anachronistic oddballs today, and certainly no one would accuse them of being well-adjusted to society, either then or now. But we misunderstand them if we construe their bizarre lifestyles as a spirituality of superficial techniques. What they modeled, and what we should emulate, is a transformation of the interior geography of the heart whatever one's exterior circumstances. For them, the desert was a specific place, of course, but for us today, it can also be a spiritual way. Fourth, I honor the desert mothers and fathers because I want to place myself in the mix of saints who have gone before me. I like what G.K. Chesterton once said about tradition. Tradition, said Chesterton, means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to, be, to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Fifth, 
And finally, I love these desert monastics most of all for their profound humanity. These saints modeled what Chrysavgus calls a spirituality of imperfection, in which one is not ashamed or embarrassed to embrace and affirm one's brokenness, wounds, darkness, and inner demons. They comfortably acknowledge intense struggles as a necessary virtue, praying with Serapion of Thumas from the fourth century, Lord, we entreat you, make us truly alive. So here are my resolutions taken from the so-called sayings of the desert monastics. I will resist commenting on them so that you can personalize them for your own Christian journey. I have a dozen resolutions this year. Number one, never stop starting over. Abba Pullman said regarding Abba Prin that every day he made a new beginning. And from Arsenius in the fifth century, my God, do not abandon me. I have done nothing good before thee, but grant me in thy compassion the power to make a start. Number two, live intentionally, not aimlessly. Think nothing and do nothing without purpose directed to God, said Mark the ascetic, for to journey without direction is wasted effort. Number three, never despair whatsoever. According to St. Macarius of Egypt, let us draw near eagerly to Christ, and let us not despair of our salvation. For it is a trick of the devil to lead us to despair by reminding us of our past sins. And from St. John of Carpathos, when someone is defeated after offering stiff resistance, he should not give up in despair. Let him take heart encouraged by the words of Psalm 145, verse 14, that God raises up all who are bowed down. Do all in your power not to fall, for the strong athlete should not fall. But if you do fall, get up again at once and continue the contest. Even if you fall a thousand times, rise up again each time. Number four, pray simply, not stupidly. I like what Evagrius the Solitary said. Often when I have prayed, I have asked for what I thought was good and persisted in my petition, stupidly importuning the will of God and not leaving it to God to arrange things as he knows is best for me. But when I have obtained what I asked for, I have been very sorry that I did not ask for the will of God to be done, because the thing turned out not to be as I had thought. And then from Abba Macarius, it is enough to say, Lord, as you will and as you know, have mercy. And if the conflict grows more fierce, say, Lord, help. My fifth resolution, renounce all self-justification. 
According to John the Dwarf, we have put aside the easy burden, which is self-accusation, and weighed ourselves down with the heavy one, self-justification. Number six, stop judging others. The monk, says Abba Moses, must never judge his neighbor at all, in any way, whatever. They said of Abba Macarius that just as God protects the world, so Abba Macarius would cover the faults he saw as though he did not see them, and those he heard as though he did not hear them. My seventh resolution, stay put. According to Mother Syncletica of the fourth century, if you find yourself in a monastery, do not go to another place, for that will harm you a great deal, just as the bird who abandons the egg she was sitting on prevents them from hatching, so the monk or the nun grows cold, and their faith dies when they go from one place to another. And in one of the more famous sayings of the fathers, in Cetus a brother went to Moses to ask for advice. He said to him, go and sit in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. Number eight, celebrate theological modesty. St. John Chrysostom says that we do not know wholly even what is given in part, but we know only a part of a part. Number nine, acknowledge my brokenness. From St. Maximus the Confessor we read, the person who has come to know the weakness of human nature has gained experience of divine power. Such a person never belittles anyone. He knows that God is like a good and loving physician who heals with individual treatment each of those who are trying to make progress. Then again, a brother said to Abba Theodore, Speak a word to me, for I am perishing. Sorrowfully, the old man said, I myself am in danger, so what can I say to you? Number 10, be ruthlessly realistic. St. Anthony said to Poeman, expect trials and temptations until your last breath. And from St. Macarius, I am convinced that not even the apostles, although filled with the Holy Spirit, were therefore completely free from anxiety. Contrary to the stupid view expressed by some, the advent of grace does not mean the immediate deliverance from anxiety. Number 11, always think good of everyone. In Evagrius the Solitary we read, show the greatest gentleness toward all people. And then my 12th resolution for the new year, read the obituaries. When the death of Arsenius drew near, the brothers saw him weeping and asked, Truly, Father, are you afraid? 
Indeed, he answered them, the fear which is mine this hour has been with me ever since I became a monk. And then from St. Gregory of Sinai, at the moment of our death, we will all know for certain what is the outcome of our life. And now for further reflection. With which of these sayings do you resonate and why? How would you describe the overall tenor of these desert sayings? Three, why are we so quick to dismiss desert monasticism as eccentric or overly zealous? Number four, have you ever met or interacted with a contemporary monastic? And if so, what did you learn? For further reading, see Sister Benedicta Ward's book, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers, and then John Cassian's Conferences of the Fathers. For my book note this week, I'm very pleased to review Jacques Ellul and Patrick Trude Chastenet. The book is titled Jacques Ellul on Politics, Technology, and Christianity. Eugene, Oregon, Whipfenstock, 2005. Translated by Joan Mendez, France, 142 pages. Despite an awkward translation that begs to be edited for everything from grammar, syntax, and spelling to word choice, this is still a significant reprint about one of the most seminal and publicly Christian intellectuals of the last 100 years. The book was first published in France in 1994 and then in the United States in 1998. Jacques Ellul lived from 1912 to 1994. He was the author of 50 books and 1,000 articles that have been translated into a dozen languages. He spent most all his life in Bordeaux, where he was professor of the history of institutions at the University of Bordeaux. Interestingly, beyond his written work as a university scholar, Elul was also personally and deeply involved in a broad array of practical activities, including parish work in his French Reformed denomination at both the local and national levels, the environment, a stint as deputy mayor for which forever convinced him of the powerlessness of politics, and then finally, he was involved with work with delinquent youth. After a general introduction that traces key influences upon Elul's life and work, the book consists of 15 chapters. But these chapters are really interviews that Trudeau Chastenet conducted with Elul over a period of 14 years, from 1981 to 1994. As a former student of Elul and professor of political science at the University of Poitiers, Chastenet is well-placed to push and prod Elul to describe his life and work. He has succeeded better than anyone at getting Elul to talk about his personal life. Most interesting is the only account I can think of that Elul gives of his Christian conversion, 
which he had previously refused to describe. Considerable attention is devoted to the influence of his wife. Finally, all the themes you might expect are also covered. The war years when Elul lived with peasant farmers, his role in the resistance, and his ideas about technology, propaganda, and politics. There are many fascinating nuggets in this book. For example, when Elul admits, quote, I never voted in my life, end quote. We also learn about his personal tastes in art, music, and poetry, the influence of his mother and father, his lifelong sense as a marginal intellectual, just the way he liked it, I might add, and his personal favorite among his many books, which was Hope in Time of Abandonment. I really put my heart into that book, said Elul. This is perhaps the best book for readers who are unfamiliar with Elul to begin with. Along with the website of the International Jacques Elul Society that was founded in the year 2000 at www.elul.org. That's E L L U L. My film review this week is of a fantastic film called Born into Brothels, 2004. In 1998, the photojournalist Zaina Brisky moved to a red light district in Calcutta to document the lives of the prostitutes. After three years, she discovered that the children born into these brothels were fascinated by her camera. Knowing that these kids faced a life of sex slavery, drugs, and violence, one day she brought the kids 10 point-and-shoot cameras and formed a workshop to help them discover the beauty of their own lives through the liberating power of art. This film won the 2005 Academy Award for Best Documentary, and it follows this class of nine children whom Brisky had gathered. Through dogged perseverance, Brisky was able to get several of the kids into private boarding schools, and even one of them to a major American university. Later, she started a foundation called Kids with Cameras that now works into Calcutta, Haiti, Cairo, and Jerusalem. There is also a book of the children's photography called Born into Brothels, Photographs by the Children of Calcutta. Much like the film's City of God, which was shot in the slums of Rio de Janeiro, and Promises, shot on site in Palestine and Israel, Born into Brothels reminds us of how much we adults have to learn from children. Born into Brothels, 2005, the 2005 Academy Award winner for Best Documentary. And finally, for poetry, as we celebrate the new year, we've posted a poem called A New Year's Poem by Alfred Tennyson. Ring out, wild bells, to the wild sky, the flying cloud, the frosty light. The year is dying in the night. Ring out, wild bells, and let him die. Ring out the old, ring in the new. Ring happy bells across the snow. The year is going, let him go. 
Ring out the false, ring in the true. Ring out the grief that saps the mind, for those that hear we see no more. Ring out the feud of rich and poor, ring in redress to all mankind. Ring out a slowly dying cause in ancient forms of party strife. Ring in the nobler modes of life with sweeter manners, purer laws. Ring out the want, the care, the sin, the faithless coldness of the times. Ring out, ring out my mournful rhymes, but ring the fuller minstrel in. Ring out false pride in place and blood, the civic slander and the spite. Ring in the love of truth and right. Ring in the common love of good. Ring out old shapes of foul disease. Ring out the narrowing lust of gold. Ring out the thousand wars of old. Ring in the thousand years of peace. Ring in the valiant man and free, the larger heart, the kindlier hand. Ring out the darkness of the land. Ring in the Christ that is to be. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 1st, 2006. And join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.